Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. It's been a while since we've done a techniques episode, listener, so I hope you're geared up for this one. Based on the admittedly ambiguous title, you might be wondering what technique it is that we're exploring. And truth be told, this is going to be more like our etiquette episode than, say, dilution or acid adjusting. In a word, today's theme is philosophy. And in a few more words, the philosophy of different styles of bartending. The specific style we're exploring today, I'm going to describe as interactive, high-end and forward-thinking from a technique perspective. How forward-thinking are we going to get? How about hot and cold toddies in the same cup? 10-second Ramos gin fizzes and liquid nitrogen by the barrel load. If you head over to Shinji's in New York's Flatiron District, you'll encounter all of those things, and you'll also bump into today's guest, John Adler. Following an illustrious culinary career, which we'll get into in the episode, John now serves as the beverage director at Shinji's, as well as the adjoined Michelin-starred omakase counter, Noda. Bond-themed coasters at the ready, it's another episode of the Cocktail College Podcast, and it's brought to you by the Vine Pair Podcast Network. You've been asking for them. So here we are. We're back with another Techniques episode here at Cocktail College. And we're joined in the studio by John Adler. John, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure to have you in today. And, you know, we've been chatting about this all fair beforehand. We're tentatively calling this bar theater, but I imagine this episode is going to get into a ton of different topics, a ton of different subjects that I think are super interesting, especially for people maybe running bar programs or interested in how different bar programs work. And this episode was kind of inspired by a experience I had recently at your bar, the bar you run, Shinji's, which really kind of blew me away. So before I kind of hint at any of what that looked like, can you just give us the background of Shinji's and and what your approach to service has been so far, and maybe how that's evolved over the time since you've been open. Absolutely. So um, I'm the beverage director for both Shinji's and Noda. Noda is an eight-seat omakase that used to be located on 28th Street, but moved to our current location on 20th Street in back of where our cocktail bar Shinji's is. So Shinji's is named after a man named Shinji Nohara, who's also known as the Tokyo Fixer. He can kind of open the doors to culinary experiences in Japan that wouldn't be available to non-Japanese residents. He was responsible for introducing the chef of Noda to our partners, and uh, we thought it was most apt to name the bar after him. So Shinji's is an 18-seat cocktail bar, um, eight seats around a curved marble counter, and then we have three booths uh, that can accommodate up to 10 people. And so this is, yeah, very much like that, um, you know, the, the the smaller cocktail bar, almost, you know, it's not an omakase style, you know, like a bar version of that because you have the menu and guests there, you know, order their drinks off the menu. But there is, and again, this comes back to this theater theme or not, there is an, an interactive aspect to the service. So actually I'll lay it out, you know, guests... Listeners of this show know full well that I'm a big martini fan. And you have, um, it's actually a Vesper, right? 
Yes. And so when I do see a Vesper on the menu, though, I'm always intrigued to try that too. And I remember asking for that when we sat down and you came over with this trolley, you're making it table side, which is something, you know, we've seen and discussed at other other bars too. Maison Premier, their, their martini is incredible. But this, you come over with the cart and then you pull out the liquid nitrogen at some point, you're chilling the glass down. Then there's this element when you're ready to pour the prepared cocktail, you throw the liquid nitrogen at the wall. I don't know, I was just blown away by it. What I enjoyed most, of course, is the fact that then when I took that drink, I wasn't just like, oh, well, that looked amazing. But then the cocktail, meh, it's a Vesper. I'm like, this is a bloody amazing Vesper. And so from the first minute to the end, like incredible experience. So keen to hear where that kind of interactive element with, with you know, again, with the liquid nitrogen and everything going on, like where did that develop from? What, what was the inspiration for that? So everything surrounding the cocktail program itself, first and foremost, you know, the drinks have to be delicious and whether it looks pretty or not really is superfluous to the fact that we really want to make our cocktails dynamic in the way that they taste as well as the thought and the technique behind them. So when I went to develop all of the cocktails, it was kind of my mission to develop a technique behind every drink that was novel that no one had ever seen before. Um, but at the same time, not every guest is looking for that. Not every guest wants to know exactly how everything is made. They're just there for a great time with a great drink and great company. So we had to keep that in mind. Um, the other thing was, if you are not sitting at a bar, um, most of the time you're just getting a drink served to you on a tray. So we wanted to make sure that you had the same exact experience if you were sitting at a table as at the bar. And that's why we brought out the cart. So every single drink we can make in the same exact way table side as we do at the bar. Um, in terms of the liquid nitrogen, it was never our intention for that to be kind of a show-stopping <laughs> moment. Um, so the bar is very, very small. We have very little freezer space. Um, and because of that, we knew that the only way to get the glass cold, especially table side, was using liquid nitrogen. Um, we used to throw it around the bar a lot and you'd get a lot of TikTok people coming in and people asking, oh, I want that smoke drink. Uh, since then, we've stopped throwing it as much. We also found out that we save about $500 a week by not throwing it as well. <laughs> I mean, I really, I, I, I love that anecdote, especially for this show in so many different ways, because it touches upon a lot of different things that we consider and we talk about with guests. The first of which, actually, we've never explored, but we explore at Vinepair a lot in kind of our editorial meetings and stuff, which is like, the influence of a platform, particularly something like TikTok, right? Like how has TikTok changed the game whereby before it was Instagram and before it was like drinks looking incredible, there was a, a style of cocktail photography that was developed over time by a few different people and we kind of all go for that. And it was like the photo was enough, but now it's the video. And yeah, what was that experience like? Just maybe the TikTok crowd, because I would imagine... And I don't want to make you say it, but I would imagine it's like you have people that are starting to come to get the video rather than to care about what's in the glass. I mean, yeah, the second you start pouring liquid nitrogen in the glass, the phones come out, everyone starts videotaping you. And uh, I mean, it kind of was interesting because you never think as a bartender, like how you're supposed to look when you're making the drinks. You're just trying to make the drinks. 
uh, to spec. You're trying to get them out as fast as you can. But now with this involved, you also have to imagine how you're going to look in this video that's going to be shared with other people that want to then come to your bar because they saw this video. Right. And the other aspect of the story just, you know, so now pouring the liquid nitrogen back into the the safe kind of thermos looking um, vessel that you kind of pour it from or whatever, just realizing that that will save you, what, 500 bucks a week or whatever. I mean, that's crazy. And it's the other aspect I want to speak about here, which is what are the practical considerations when you, for your bar program, for something that is, again, interactive um, and, and a unique experience for guests? So from a financial perspective, if you have the know with all, this is, I mean, it is incredibly beneficial financially. So everything is weighed out to spec. So um, all of our recipes are weighed out by the gram. I, some of the cocktails have even 20 recipes that go into them. So we have separate recipes and then they get um, batched together and then uh, vacuum seal bagged in 700 milliliter uh, bags. And then those are stored at either room, fridge, or freezer temp, depending on the drink. So in order to, you know, calculate inventory and stuff, it's super easy. You just count the bags and you already have that recipe out. I already know my margins on all of that. I know what my best selling drinks are, and I know that I'm hitting those financial benchmarks that I need to. And then from a practical standpoint, in terms of service, if you run out of a bottle, all you have to do is grab a bag, cut the corner open and funnel it back in and Mm -hmm. you're ready to go. And all of that just lends to expediency on the back end. So when it comes time to do this Vesper, it literally takes me 10 seconds to make the drink. Mm -hmm. So I have more time to actually talk to you about the story behind the drink. And if you want to know all the technique behind it, I can talk about it as well. Mm -hmm. Then again, if you're just there for the video, I can take my time making sure you get a beautiful video. (laughs) So it's kind of, um, you know, it can be whatever anyone wants it to be in terms of the experience. That's amazing. And just to give us maybe a little bit more context, I love the the explanation there in terms of the backpacking stuff and and why why that's useful for you as a a bar operator, bar director. Can you maybe give us in real terms what that looks like for that Vesper cocktail itself, right? Like, so what those different components look like for that particular drink. You don't need to share any secret recipes or whatever, but like all of the different components that will come together for that Vesper. Yeah, totally. I mean, I never really care about giving out secrets. If people want to, you know, take the time to explore technique and replicate it, I'm cool with that. And I'm always trying to develop technique on my own. So if someone wants to, you know, use something, I'm all for it. Uh, so for the Vesper, which we call the honey penny, uh, all the drinks, the easiest part really is kind of making the drink and coming up with the recipe. The difficult part is figuring out the soul of the drink and the story behind it. So the story behind this drink is, you know, Vesper was a cocktail that's not created by a bartender, but was created by Ian Fleming, who's the author of all the James Bond novels. And, um, you know, Money Penny was James Bond's secretary, or sorry, M's secretary, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are lovely honey notes layered throughout this drink. So we use two different types of gin. We use Nika gin, um, and then a gin called Sakurajima Komasa. So it's made from the smallest Satsuma mandarins on the planet. They grow on the side of a volcano called Sakurajima in Japan. Um, then we 
use uh, Kettle One Vodka that we wash with beeswax. And then this is kind of the interesting part. So normally in a Vesper, you have a low alcohol aperitif, whether it's Coqui Americano or Lule, which is an aromatized, uh, you know, grape-based uh, aperitif, um, slightly sweetened. And that's usually low ABV, usually between 12 and 16% alcohol. So we kind of flipped the script on this. We subbed out some of the vodka at 40% ABV and made our own aperitif at that alcohol level. So we use golden raisins, local honey, flowers, and chincona bark. So it's the same sweetness level as Lule or Coqui Americano would be, but at 40% ABV. And then we sub in for that low ABV aperitif, a locally made uh, mead, honey wine. It's made from uh, uh, Enlightened Wines. It's out in Brooklyn. Um, so that is bone dry, no sugar whatsoever, but at the same ABV as the Lillet. And then we dilute it at 22% uh, with water. And then for all of our drinks, we um, use a machine called an ultrasonic homogenizer. So if you can imagine a glass of water, water doesn't evaporate on its own. You know, it's stable, doesn't change states, but as we all know, alcohol evaporates over time. It's an unstable molecule. When you apply ultrasonic waves to things, everything becomes unstable. So it all kind of blends together. It prevents phase separation. So when normally you pre-batch cocktails, you have to shake up the bottle to make sure it mixes together. We don't have that problem. And then when you go to freeze it, because the water molecules and everything that's not alcohol has become unstable, it will never freeze. So we can keep it at negative 27 degrees Fahrenheit and then it'll just remain that temperature. That's amazing. Yeah. And so of those components, are you keeping each of them separate in the backpacks, as you said, and then you're, 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 you know, you're weighing them to a certain point where it's, so you know that it's basically like maybe two of this bag, one of that bag. I know that's an oversimplification, but is that what it looks like? Or is this Vesper something where you can bring all of those components together and, and have it kind of bagged as one? So we basically have like our pars of batches. Mm -hmm. um, so downstairs in our prep area, we have separate, the separate components that are created. So the components that are created for that are that kind of house-made aperitif and the beeswax washed vodka. Um, once we dip below our pars, we'll make a batch of seven or eight bags. Uh, each bag will contain about seven to eight cocktails in it. And then we'll uh, homogenize that batch together, bag that up in separate 700 milliliter uh, batches, and then store them in the freezer. So that way during service, all you have to do is go down to the freezer, grab the oldest bags since we're trying to do first first in, first out and everything. Mm -hmm. And then once again, once it dips below that par, we have those separate components that we can blend together. Then later we'll create those components. So that way everything's kind of smooth in terms of uh, production schedule. Mm -hmm. And I know some folks right now might be listening and thinking, well, this is this is an episode about interactivity and, and, and the experience as a guest. This seems super technical and maybe a different techniques episode it could be. But listening to you describe that, which is actually, yeah, exactly, basically the experience I had when having that Vesper, for me, it's like, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot to explain. For people like myself who are interested, it's amazing. I want to know it all. But if you're trying to explain that to me at the same time as jiggering this ingredient, jiggering that ingredient, stirring, making sure you're not over diluting, 
tasting. Then suddenly that's just, there's so much going on. So this idea of being able to batch it, but then making it tableside, I don't know. It makes so much sense to me that like you have your consistency and you can tell the story, which is the story that you want to tell and you feel like is an important part of the drink and your service. And also just one more thing. Am I... I know it was either this cocktail or a different cocktail. Part of that interactivity as well as like you have specially made uh, bar coasters for it. Was that for the? So every single drink has its own special coaster, and then the pre-batch bottles also have their own specific labels. So for this drink, we have that classic, um, you know, image of Bond shooting with the circle with the blood coming down. Um, that's the label, and then the coaster itself is actually an image of Roger Moore. Smoking a cigarette, drinking a martini. (laughs) And again, just that idea of if you're in service, if you're making this, if you're picking up four or five different bottles, making the drink, then the next thing is you need to get the right coaster, not just a coaster. Then that just adds another level. And I can imagine that you just wouldn't be able to hit that consistency and have the the level of service that you want to have. It is, though, as I mentioned, a very technical approach to making cocktails. I was wondering if you could tell us today, actually, I'll just highlight one other that's kind of amazing that I'm sure is a big seller for you guys. You have a hot toddy where when you drink it, the left side of the cocktail is cold and the right side is warm. Now, I'm no physics chemistry major, whatever. I don't know how that that works. So my question to you is, What's your background here? How did you get into this style of of, of making drinks? And um, I guess the final thing is, how do you feel about that term that people use when they talk about like molecular? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my background is actually as a cook. Um, I cooked uh, for about ten to twelve years, uh, very high level restaurants. Some you know some three Michelin star restaurants as well. Um, and then for the last five years, I've been a beverage professional, um, mainly as a sommelier. Um, the whole time I was cooking though, and doing this, I was always interested in cocktails and I was always interested in kind of learning new technique, learning the science behind things. Um, and yeah, it, this is kind of a, kind of an amalgamation of all my experience. Uh, I don't even really think of myself as a bartender. Because mm-hmm. I can't really, if you put me behind the stick at Attaboy or someplace like that, I'd be terrible. <laughs> uh, I can really only do what I do here at Shinji's. Um, but I think of myself more as a hospitality professional uh, because I'm pretty well versed in all of those regards. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I hate that word molecular. It's really, like, really, <laughs> yeah. really bad. Fair play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I think it, it does a disservice and it, and it also makes it sound like, again, I'm not sure if we mentioned this at the, at the beginning of the show, but I think the operative word here is intention and you're doing things with an intent. You devise the intention. You have a, again, this is a wishy-washy word, but like a philosophy, right? You have that intention. That it's, Calling things molecular to me seems like it's a gimmick and that's very not the experience that you're offering. Yeah, totally. I mean, you could totally say that people who develop spirits or even wine are technically molecular because they're using finding agents that are have words that most people don't understand. And I think when people don't understand something, they like to pigeonhole it. Um, if they don't understand the science behind uh, something, 
in a cocktail or in food, they might call it molecular because it sounds sciencey. But, you know, once things become out there in the open and more people tend to understand it, then those kind of words go away. Mm -hmm. And the, so again, noting that you're, you know, that your intention was never to be where the bar that throws liquid nitrogen at walls. I got to say, I, just for the record here, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good, but I can see and, and I hear your experience of like where that can lead in terms of the crowd you have in and whatnot. On the other hand here though, this kind of taking the interactive level of service up to the next level. And then you might look at a bar that goes to the full extreme, uh, you know, the aviary, for example, right? I, your style of cocktails is, is different to that, but like you're maybe closer to that than an Attaboy is, let's use that example. Those bars are very few and far between even here in New York. I've been to a handful of others as well that that go a lot further in that direction and don't always succeed in doing so. Where do you feel like that, your bar program, where does it fit in the New York cocktail landscape? Is this a special occasion thing? Is this a, like a monument thing where people go and they're like, I've seen that, I really want to try it? Or is it something also where you have regulars, like like any other bar? Well, I think with any technique forward bar, even restaurant for that matter, there's kind of two categories within that. There's the places that are doing things to say, look how impressive I am. And then there's places that are doing it to say, uh, how happy can I make you? And that's always our intention. You know, there is technique behind what we do. But at the end of the day, if you come to Shinji's, we are very warm, we're inviting, we're fun. Um, and depending on who's in the room, it can be a completely different experience. We do have tons of regulars who just come in. They're not even going to grab a cocktail. They might just even grab like a glass of mezcal, glass of sake, you know, bottle of wine. And they're just there for the vibe. Um, but at the same time, we also have people who come to see the cocktails because they're excited about it and they've heard it and they've seen the videos and all of that. So it's really incredible to see the diversity of people from all walks of life coming in. It is at a little bit of a higher price point, but that being said, most bars are these days. That very much is true. And I also think that, yeah, it's true. You know, it's, it's an expensive period for cocktails in New York. I definitely put you guys on, on, on the higher end of where things are going there too, but that does, in my mind, come into this place where we are right now where it's like, again, a three Michelin star restaurant, that's an expensive meal, right? Like, that's where things have gone. That's where things have gone in the culinary landscape where people are like, this has become something people are more interested in, whether it's food, wine, cocktails. People really are willing to spend more and it's not just for the 1% too, you have folks that are like, no, I will save up so that I can maybe go to a three-star restaurant once a year with my partner because it's a special thing, right? Like there's a place for these things. Absolutely. I mean, I don't really care how much something costs as long as it's delicious. Like I will go to a three Michelin star restaurant and I'll get a really expensive bottle of wine because I know for a fact I'm going to have a really good time. That being said, I'm also going to go to a taco truck and get as many tacos as I can, not spend as much money, and know I'm going to have a really good time. doesn't matter what it is, as long as, you know, the establishment fulfills the promise of giving you an amazing experience, whether that's cocktails, hospitality, food. Um, even if you go to a concert or a sporting game, you're 
expecting a certain experience. And as long as that promise is fulfilled, people don't feel like they've wasted their money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've worked in three-star restaurants before. I don't know whether you want to share any of the names of them or whatnot, but it, that doesn't really matter. My, my point that I want to make here is that like for, to go back to the, the kind of um, the Grand Ackett's kind of thing, right? Like maybe a restaurant like that doesn't need to be someone's go to, i.e. they're trying to be a regular there. I mean, most of those ones you can't because you can't get in that often anyway, right? But even if that's not something where you're like, I'm a regular at this restaurant, that doesn't mean there's not a place for it. And that doesn't mean that, yeah, people aren't going there for special occasions or that it doesn't have a place. Now, maybe there's only five or six of those that can exist before there becomes too many, right, For for the demand. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there are all these different places where people fit in. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah, totally. From dive bar to to super high end cocktail bar and everything in between. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you had to classify it, Shinji's at its best is a place you can come for an incredible cocktail, for an incredible meal. I mean, all of our ingredients are the same ingredients we use at Noda, so all of our fish is sourced four times a week from Japan. Um, and also we have an incredible beverage list behind, uh, the cocktails. So I think that Shinji's is a unique opportunity for anyone visiting the city or living in the city on a Monday or a Sunday night to be able to come there, have top quality sushi, incredible cocktail, and then your friends just sitting there having a beer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know anywhere else in the city that you can have that experience. Yeah, no, I think that's a really wonderful offering. And like I said, I think there's only a handful of places if that in a city like New York that are doing these things. However, we've seen Netflix's Drinks Masters come out. And I'll put my hand up here and say, like, I've seen a couple, you know, clips and whatnot. I I, I should take the time to sit down and do a better job of, like, watching the whole thing. But from what I've seen, this is a show that very much is about the visuals. We actually wrote an article about this on Vine Pair talking about, like, whether this might launch the first household name bartender or not, right? But part of that show, what makes it appealing to me would be that these are very visually attractive, technique-driven drinks. Because if you make a Manhattan, people are tuning out soon. Do you know what I mean? Like either it looks boring or people don't really have the point of reference in the same way they do as a roasted chicken comes out of the oven. We all know what that is, right? So... How much do you think a show like that might influence things? Might be like, actually, more guests are looking to try this experience or more bartenders are inspired by seeing it and want to launch that kind of program? I mean, I think there's certain aspects to programs like that that are always beneficial. I mean, whether it's good press or bad press, having more uh, of a platform for this industry is a great thing. I mean, I think it was like number one on Netflix for like a week or two. Mm-hmm. The fact that that many people are tuning in and excited about cocktails is nothing but amazing for bartenders out there. I mean, some of the techniques that they show, uh, I always kind of have a pet peeve about people, you know, showing something like uh, spherification as if it was something new, even though it was invented over 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, fact that people can talk about 
you know, a milk punch or something like that and make it understandable to the average person who's watching the show is really cool. So that way when they go into a bar and they see something like, oh, this is a milk punch, the bartenders necessarily have to explain that to people. It's the same thing as, uh, you know, back in milk and honey days when they were trying to explain what a daiquiri was and not the frozen version of it. Now people come in, they ask for daiquiris and they get what they were expecting. And, you know, it's just kind of the evolution of uh, educating the guest and uh, broadening their their kind of repertoire of what they can understand. And one of the things I've always chatted with folks about when we've been speaking about that show, I'm like, it's interesting because that style of making drinks that works so well for TV, I've always had the argument that like, yeah, it works for TV, but I'm not sure this actually works that well for a bar. But then here we are sat talking about like, okay, not exactly the same techniques, but you know, technique driven bars can work, but you need to be very intentional about it and you need to have everything figured out as you've, you know, explained when you broke down your Vesper for us. I was wondering, what are some of the most inventive cocktails or techniques that you've worked on that you might want to highlight otherwise? Like we spoke about that Vesper there. We spoke about the this is probably not the official name, but the hot and cold toddy that you have, like what are some other ones that you want to highlight that you also think are worth it, not just for show? Totally. I mean, to be honest, the coolest drink that we have right now hasn't hit the menu right now. It's off menu, but in a few weeks it will hit the menu. It's a Ramos Gin Fizz that we can shake in 10 seconds. Wow. Okay. So I, I can put up eight Ramoses in about five minutes at our bar. No way. Yeah. And are you able to give us some kind of insight on how that works? Totally. So anyone can actually do this as long as you have some liquid nitrogen. So it takes a little bit of math. You basically have to calculate out the separate parts. So you have to weigh out the gin component, the sugar component, and then calculate out the water content that would be in the egg white and the dilution from shaking. Um, you mix all of that together and then you take that and add 5% weight egg white powder and blend that until it's completely mixed. So you keep that cold in the fridge and then you, um, take cream and put it in an ISI charger, whipped cream canister and dispense that into liquid nitrogen. Then you blend that up in a food processor. So it's kind of powdered, weigh that into 30 gram portions, which equivalates to an ounce of cream. And then you keep that in the freezer. So during service, all you have to do to make this Ramos is jigger out your citrus, jigger out your base. You put the uh, frozen cream in your other tin, shake it together for 10 seconds, make sure your glass is cold, make sure that you have a pitcher with sparkling water, pour it together, and you can get a two-inch head on the top. No way. That sounds wild. I got to come back and see that happen because, I mean, yeah, the, if, if ever there was a drink that was really, you know, ripe for, for applying new techniques. And I know f- folks have also done stuff with like Hamilton Beach Blenders and the, the ISI like gas things like you say. But wow, yeah, that sounds, that sounds really incredible. Um, you've partly answered my next question here because I think it's very much true that if you wanted to, you could do that at home, but it does require some, you know, special ingredients or whatnot, a couple of tools. Nothing too crazy or expensive, though. I was wondering if you had any other kind of techniques that maybe are 
listeners who are at home bartenders, maybe one, I'm throwing at you this one blind, but like if you have a technique that you're like, here's a cool hack that's amazing, that has fun results, but anyone can kind of do it at home and doesn't require too much, but maybe seems like you're taking your cocktail game to the next level or technique driven. Totally. I mean, there are tons of really easy things you can do to make your cocktails taste better. Uh, I mean, what we do at our bar is we squeeze all of our citrus fresh to order. Mm -hmm. If you taste citrus juice that was squeezed just now versus citrus juice that was squeezed an hour ago, it tastes completely different. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is just seasoning your drinks. You know, a lot of bartenders use saline solutions. So 20% salt mixed in with water. We also tend to season ours with um, other acids. So a lactic acid solution, just to give it a different mouthfeel. Um, we'll sub out a saline solution for white soy sauce or even um, shio koji, uh, just to kind of give it that extra pop. Um, and just playing around with that with different classics and adding those little tiny nuances will really uh, make those drinks vibrant in a way that you wouldn't have expected otherwise. Mm-hmm. I know you're a big proponent, therefore, of weighing ingredients versus jiggering, going by weight by volume. So I weigh out ingredients in the same proportion they would be jiggered because if you are messing around with a scale during a busy service, that's not going to help at all. But if you're pre-batching something, definitely go and bust out that scale because it's going to be way more consistent. And I think it's just good practice to be weighing things out in general. And we might get into this very shortly, but... In terms of a scale, I'm assuming you're a big fan or you're a big proponent of getting a scale that measures to point something, something grams, especially when those citric acids, malic acids come into it. And when it's for at home versus at a bar where you're, I don't know, working with much greater quantities for these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of bartenders and cooks call these drug scales, but I was going to say, yeah, yeah it, uh, it'll weigh out to like the hundredth decimal point just because when you're dealing with those small percentages, 20% of, you know, like 50 grams, mm-hmm. you know, if you use a regular scale, it's just going to read zero every time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, or, or yeah, it's, it's a tough one and a little goes a long way, especially when it comes to those kind of acid adjusting and whatnot. Um, fantastic. Well, before we move into the final section of the show, I just wanted to open the floor for you, see if there's anything we haven't covered here, just about kind of your philosophy, your intention as your bar program or the topics we've covered today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's always important to kind of like take a step back and not take anything for granted. Like acid adjusting is super cool. Um, uh, You just mentioned it. I think it's a really great way to kind of change the flavor profile of fruit juices, which is what a lot of bartenders do. And, you know, we kind of take a step back and we're like, well, if you can adjust acid adjust juice, you could acid adjust spirits as well. You know, anything you do with any product, you can apply that same technique to other things. So we've been messing around with like bricks adjusting spirits, for example. Um, we're launching a last word where we sub out Luxardo for, uh, there's a product that Empirical Spirits makes called the Plum I suppose, which has a lot of the same notes as Luxardo. Um, both sit at 32% ABV. So if you just adjust the bricks of the Empirical Spirits product to the same as Luxardo, you can do a straight sub out. Um, so lots of cool techniques there. Um, and I think just in terms of bartenders moving forward, uh, really taking out the equation of needing to follow the spec of a classic cocktail too. 
Um, I think that it's great what the, you know, the cocktail revolution we've had in New York and around the world the last 15 years or so, bringing back pre-prohibition era practices and drinks. But that's pretty ubiquitous with cocktails at this point. So I think it's really cool to kind of say, well, what's the next step? Um, for us, it's been not listing ingredients uh, in any of our drinks, uh, which some people are a little confused by. But at the same time, so we have a drink called a Tropicana. It comes inside of a real orange. And it just tastes like a really delicious orange cream school. And everyone asks me, well, what's in the drink? And I'm like, okay. Well, there's a house-made orange liqueur. There's Japanese whiskey infused with mango. There's a vanilla liqueur infused with thyme. Hojicha, fresh lime, fresh lemon juice, fresh orange juice. That doesn't tell you what it's going to taste like. It's probably more confusing if I listed all of those ingredients right. on the menu. And similarly so with a lot of classic cocktails. Last word, for example, the average person has no idea what green chartreuse or Luxardo tastes like. It's not going to tell you what the drink tastes like. So the idea of needing to list ingredients on a menu um, versus having that more interactive experience with the guest and making sure that you have all those kind of systems in place in your bar to allow you to have that hospitality for experience is I think the next evolution in bars, which we're really trying to work uh, towards, um, you know, spreading the word out there to other bartenders that that is possible. Yeah. And I think if, if you don't mind me just, just dropping in with one final thought here on that too, it very much came across that what you're doing there is outward facing versus inward facing in that like these techniques are being applied so that you can provide a better experience for the guest rather than so when someone sits down, you're like, hey, look at us. This is what we do. And there's a very subtle distinction there, but it makes a massive difference. So yeah, congratulations on that. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you. All right, then let's do it. Let's move into the final section of the show and hit you with our five recurring weekly questions. Starting with question number one, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? So at Shinji's, it would have to be Japanese whiskey just because we have one of the largest collections in the city. I think we have about 80 different bottlings. Um, I'm very lucky that I get to taste all of them and I get to experience all of them. Um, at home, I don't really drink cocktails that much. Um, you know, I tend to enjoy drinking with my wife who doesn't like cocktails. Um, she loves champagne. Um, so two of us will just, you know, sit back, watch a TV show, drink some champagne and have a wonderful time on our day off. <laughs> Amazing. I'm also a big proponent of champagne does not need to be for celebrations. I mean, the pricier stuff, yeah, but... That can be a weekday wine. Absolutely. <laughs> Question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? I think we already talked about this. I think it would be, have to be a scale. <laughs> <laughs> the old drug scale. Yeah. <laughs> For the citric acid, we're, purely, we're talking about here. But yeah, definitely. Number three for you. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in multiple facets of this industry, I'm going to say from, you know, from chef, som, bartending, running a bar program. So when I was working at a restaurant called Cezanne, when we won our th third Michelin star, um, the chef, Josh, he only said one thing when it happened. He said, none of this matters. If money was falling from the sky, someone would still have to wake up in the morning to pick it up. Now let's get back to work. And all that means is the accolades don't matter. You know, people 
loving the bar doesn't matter. If you're not invested in the work that it takes to do all of this, then none of it matters. Great advice. And it's that, that kind of like the, the old sports one there, we go again kind of thing, right? That yeah. it's just like, yeah, I don't know. At some point you got to sit back and enjoy it for, for a moment. But yeah, I think in terms of a work ethic, great advice. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? That was a tough one because I love so many bars. I want to like pigeonhole one and throw other people under the bus. But, you know, I really love the bar at EMP a lot. Um, I think it is the the hidden gem of New York City. Most people don't realize that you can just walk in there without a reservation, no dress code, sit at the bar. Sebastian or Richie or any of the amazing bartenders there will make you one of the best drinks in the city. And I would definitely stop by there if I couldn't go anywhere else. That is news to me. I've never. Oh, I mean, you're right there. Realize. You got to go there. Yeah, yeah. And, and and in terms of just like on a on a standard weeknight, you think I'll go? In, you know, I could probably head down there a little early. I'm getting well, in because no one knows about it. All right, we'll scratch that in the edits. We'll <laughs> remove that one. <laughs> Amazing. Final question for you here today: If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I'd have to be a daiquiri. Daiquiri? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the most delicious cocktail out there, in my opinion. You can't screw it up, but you can screw it up pretty badly if you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And if they turn around to you and say, um, you have full choice over your rum, which rum are you going for? Which rum blend? Do you mind sharing what you Um, might go for there? I usually tend to like something drier on the rum. So we use Brugal Extra Dry. Uh, I also like the unaged, well, I guess lower age statement, El Dorado, the three-year, anything that the sugar content isn't really prominent on the palate. If I'm overseas, I'll get Havana Club that's actually from Cuba. (laughs) Nice, nice, very nice. What a drink. All right then, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been a super interesting episode. I'm excited for it to go out. And like I said at the top there, I know the folks, I know the listeners enjoy these techniques episodes. So thanks again for sharing all your experiences. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.